three, two, one. Big grin. Hey! Uh, three, two, one. Big grin. Hey! What up? Welcome to Theology with Coffee. We are your hosts. I am Kelson Wolverton. And I am Taylor Wood. And we are so glad that you are here again for Theology with Coffee. <laughs> yes, we are. And uh, we're trying uh, some new tech stuff today. So mm -hmm. we'll see how it all goes and fits together. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll keep doing the Facebook thing. So if you're a regular Facebook watcher, things won't change for you They at won't all. change. Um, mm -hmm. And you get to see so, our faces. Who doesn't love seeing these beautiful, attractive faces? Well, maybe yours. I don't know. <laughs> nah. <laughs> nah. Nah, nah, uh, nah. Okay. So we're really excited today um, because we're jumping into a new book. Uh, we did finish off the book of Hebrews. Hosea. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. uh, we would encourage you, um, I thought our Hebrews study was, was really, really Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. Uh, we really got deep on that one. So mm -hmm. I would encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to watch those episodes, to go back and watch those. However, this morning, we're going to be starting the book of Hosea. We do have plenty of these Bible journals left. Uh, looks like we still had another 12 or 15 mm -hmm. or so. Yeah. Um, and so uh, please reach out to us if you would like one. If we can mail it to you, we will do that at no expense to you. Uh, but we would love for everyone possible to get their hands on these journals um, because they're really a great, great resource. And this one, you get uh, four books for your buck uh, because this one includes Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. And yeah. we will probably go through all four of those mm -hmm. as we move forward. Um, do you have any other announcements before we pray and jump into this? Uh, nope. Just uh, pretty much today we're going to talk about more of like the background of like who the author is. The purpose, the theme, we kind of do this for every book. So mm -hmm. um, officially we'll be in chapter one next week. Yeah. However, this is just kind of the summary of Yeah, watch the that book. chord. I know. <laughs> so. so, yeah. Okay. Well, why don't you pray? Sure. Pray us in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. And Father, we just left it to you, our brothers and sisters in Central Texas right now. I know that there were several tornadoes that hit yesterday and... Um, just a lot of chaos is happening. And so, Father, I pray for um, TBM. I know that they're headed that way to take care of the people that are there. I pray for safety again for those individuals, that they would continue to just trust you, that the community would serve alongside one another during this really hard and difficult time. Um, Father, I just look to you as we talk about the overview of Hosea, as we dive in the, the next several weeks of learning this specific book, Father, I just pray that the Spirit would give us new insight about who you are. Maybe a reminder of something that we never thought or uh, just a profound light bulb moment that just, wow, you know, how incredible you are as you, as the God of the universe. And so I just pray that we would dive in, that the, we would continue to meditate on it uh, day and night, and that we would make sure that this Bible, this Word, is true, that it's knowledgeable, that it does penetrate and changes people's lives. And so, Father, I pray for individuals who are watching this, who have been for several weeks with Hebrews, uh, Judges, First and Second Peter, Jude, you name it, uh, who have not accepted you, Father, that through the book of Hosea, that they would see your love, your purpose in that, and that um, they would take the opportunity to accept you as their personal Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you and we praise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as Kelson said, um, this, today is sort of an overview of the book of Hosea. Now, if this is your first time watching uh, Theology with Coffee, we welcome you and we're glad you're here. Uh, what we like to do before we jump into a book and start going verse by verse is we like to get a grasp on sort of the overall features, the overall things we're going to be looking at and, and discovering in, the, in this book. Now, here at Theology with Coffee, there's a couple of, I, I think, guiding principles that sort of uh, define the way that we study Scripture, the way that we talk about Scripture. Uh, one of those is the unity of these books of the Bible. That is the idea that these books are not randomly put together. Right. Uh, each of these books have a plot. Each of these books have a theme and a purpose to them. And so uh, you really don't get what's going on in the Bible if you just pick and choose verses at random. You really need to have a grasp on what's going on overall in that book. Uh, the other principle that, that kind of guides us is that the Bible itself is a unified story from right. Genesis to Revelation. 
And one of the things we talk about a lot is how a book connects to the rest of Scripture, uh, the rest of the areas. And so uh, this is something you can expect, and this is something you're going to see us drawing these connections mm-hmm. as we as we go throughout. Now, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to be talking about five different topics today uh, in our classic sort of all-over-the-place theology with coffee style. Right. But we will be, in general, talking about five different ideas or topics in regards to the book. We're going to be talking about authorship, date, structure, purpose, and theme. Uh, the first four we kind of split up between us, and then we'll kind of have a discussion about the theme at the very end. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you can expect. Anything you want to say by way of introduction before we kind of jump into this overview? Uh, no, I thought that was good. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the authorship of the book of Hosea. And this will be a fairly short section because yeah. we don't know a whole lot about the author other than it is Hosea. The name of the book is also the author of the book, uh, the person who penned uh, this this book that includes both narrative and poetry in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hosea's name, uh, or as it would be pronounced in the Hebrew, Hosea, it means Yahweh has rescued. And I think that's a beautiful picture, not only of uh, a great name, but it's also a theme that we're going to see yeah. throughout this book. Um, Now, Hosea primarily ministered in the northern kingdom, uh, and I'm going to allow Kelson to tell you a little bit more about that whenever we get into the date section, Uh, but just know that broadly speaking, we're in a period of Israel's history in which Israel is divided. Uh, So if you were with us back in our Judges, uh, uh, whenever we did the book of Judges, Judges comes before the kingdom period. Then we have the kingdom period, which is uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. Then we have the divided kingdom period Mm -hmm. in which Judah is one kingdom, Israel is another kingdom, or the northern kingdom. Uh, This book primarily deals with this in this divided kingdom era in this northern kingdom of Israel. And in the book, this will be a little bit confusing if you don't know what to look for, but Hosea himself is going to refer to this northern kingdom by a number of different names. The most predominant of these, he will call it Israel. He will call it Ephraim, which is the uh, name of Joseph's uh, younger son, younger of two sons. But it's also the name of the, the strongest tribe in the northern region. So that's why it gets the name Ephraim. And he'll also refer to it as Jacob, which is another name for Israel. So all three of these, he'll use them all interchangeably to talk about the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Now, again, without going too much into date, just to know kind of who this author is and what he's looking at, he is preaching and prophesying in a time of relative security in the northern kingdom. Uh, the Israel's greatest rivals at the time, Assyria and Egypt, are both a little bit weaker. They're not as militarily active as what they have been in the past. And so this is a time of relative security under the reign of Jeroboam II. However, with that security, it is also a time of rampant idolatry and perversion. And so you're going to see this throughout the book. Israel thinks things are okay, when in reality they're not okay at all. And the other thing that I want to talk about with, with this author, Hosea, is perhaps more than any other author, any other prophet for sure, his personal family life and struggles play into this book. They're very prominent in the story of this book. Yeah. In fact, these struggles, these marital issues that he has, serve as the central image or central uh, metaphor that drives the entire plot line of this entire book. I'm going to talk more in detail on that when I get to structure, but just know that right now the fact that uh, Hosea has a wife and children and the activities of this wife are very, very important to the book. And his struggle as a husband and father are going to form the image, uh, the imagery backbone of this entire book. And so it's it's almost autobiogra- uh, autobiographical in many sections as he talks about his own struggles and compares that also with what's going on in, in Israel at the time. Uh, and so with that, I'm going to bounce it over to Kelson to tell you a little bit about the date and what's going on in Israel at the time of the writing of this book. Yeah, so uh, the date, we are uh, looking roughly around 783 to 730 B.C. Um, during the time... Ch- pretty much shortly after another prophet, which we'll get to eventually, Amos, um, who was talking and prophesying about it. Um, Just also to heads up with the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom are the 10 tribes, and then the Southern Kingdom is Judah and Benjamin, just Mm -hmm. to kind of give an overview of why, what makes that significant between the Northern and the Southern tribes. Um, So we see that it pretty much starts at the 
end reign of Jeroboam II, uh, who was the king. And eventually Hosea will see several kings throughout his time as a northern kingdom. We're talking about six. Mm-hmm. All who were never appointed directly. Um, I thought it was really interesting in the fact that, you know, each king is killed by another king who's yeah. assassinated. And so we see this corrupt society within the northern kingdom of that there isn't an actual appointed chosen king or reign. Mm-hmm. It's just people saying they have the ability to be able to be king. So why not? And so just for Hosea, he's seeing all this stuff that's happening again. Yes, there's some safety, but eventually we're going to see more of where the Assyrians and the Egyptians will come after that northern kingdom, this corrupt society that is happening during um, this time yeah. before it is destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had some questions for you because a lot of times when we talk about the date of this book, uh, I know primarily we're looking at this list of kings that we get in verse one. Yeah. Um, and he lists a series of Judahite kings, yeah. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He only lists one king for is uh, the northern kingdom. Right. Uh, Jeroboam, which is Jeroboam the second. Um, so you're kind of putting this, uh, you would say that this would go towards the end of Jeroboam's reign. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't list those other kings of the northern right. kingdom. He only lists Jeroboam, but it's towards the end of Jeroboam's reign. Is that kind of where you're putting things? Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I think the reason why those northern kings are not mentioned, because is at the time, we again, seeing how the king's of the north were not considered appointed and chosen, but with Uzai and all those other ones, even though some of them were not great kings, yeah. let's be honest, that that was still established by God's reign. Well, yeah. this is one of the major differences between the southern kingdom and the northern mm-hmm. kingdom is that for the southern kingdom of Judah, all the kings are Davidic kings. Yes, absolutely. Perhaps not in character and practice, practice but right. certainly in bloodlines. Absolutely. They are descendants, they are royal descendants of David. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, as you reference in the northern kingdom, you'll get two or three kings in one dynasty, and then someone will get knocked off. Right. And then you'll have a new dynasty start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jeroboam is a part of the Jehu dynasty, I believe. Is That's that, correct. Okay, mm-hmm. so the Jehu dynasty that knocks off Ahab. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've got this series of, of assassinations going on. So it's a lot more chaos in the Northern Kingdom in terms of who's leading and who's in control. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing that I think is, is important to note about the date is looking at the 730 date. I mean, at this point, we are only seven, eight years from the fall of the Northern Kingdom. Right, that's correct. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. That happens in 722. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that because I do think that even though it's a, that's an event that doesn't happen during Hosea's ministry, it is an important background information to keep in our mind. Yeah, so we, we definitely see Hosea, several other prophets have continued to prophesy, and we'll talk about the importance of prophecy very soon, um, of how hey, like because of the wickedness that you have in your hearts, because you continue to whore after all these other gods, this is what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. And the people are not listening whatsoever. And it gets to the point where eventually, you know, they're not listening, they're not paying attention, and where the Assyrians um, come in and pretty much take over the whole northern kingdom. Like, and we're even talking tribe after tribe. Remember 10 tribes, right? 10 tribes. And I think it's so interesting of like, then they become exiled from the very land that God promised and chose them from the Mm -hmm. very beginning. And you just see this, just like judges, this whirlpool spiral. We see that completely at the end, you know, of his chosen people, the place that he gave them, the promised land, which they were supposed to fulfill in judges, which they never do. Um, because if there's not unity, there is dividedness, and we see that definitely in the divided kingdom, that they would have to leave to the very place that yeah. was given. Yeah. And, and this is pretty incredible because Hosea is prophesying the fall of the northern kingdom yep. at the hands of Assyria. Assyria. During the reign of Jeroboam II, when Assyria was actually weak. Right, absolutely. Assyria went into decline, and it's not until Sennacherib comes and revives the Assyrian kingdom. Absolutely. And so his words at this time would have sounded ridiculous to the people. Because in their mind, Assyria was weaker, and Assyria was actually a potential ally, is what we're going to see in this Right, book. yeah. Because we definitely mm-hmm. see, too, and uh, I forget which one of those kings, they actually make a treaty with mm-hmm. Assyria. But then, you know, backstab and 
lots of drama. You know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, uh, good rundown of the date and what's going on at this time. Now what I want to do is I want to take a look at the book itself. Now that we've kind of talked about who the author is and what's going on in Israel at the time, let's take a, book, a look at the, at the book because the book itself has a structure that communicates something about what it's doing. Now, there is uh, the, there was actually very little consensus I found in studying. Uh, I, I read five, six different scholars and found five or six different outlines for this book. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. they're very complicated mm-hmm. uh, outlines. I want to give you what I think is a very simple outline for you to follow that breaks into two sections and that second section has two subsections. Yeah. Okay. That's so I'm, I'm going to break it down that. very yeah. easily. I'm glad you did it the same <laughs> way. Good. Good that we're going to be following yeah. the same thing. Um, so first of all, pretty much everyone agrees on this. The first major section of this book is going to be chapters one through three. Right. Chapters one through three form what I described earlier as the uh, image backbone for the entire book of Hosea. And this is primarily written in narrative, although there is a poem in chapter two. But the primary force of chapters one through three is a narrative that describes Hosea and his marriage. Now, Hosea's call as a prophet is very different than any other prophet that we get in the Old Testament. Because when Hosea is called to be a prophet, God says, hey, I want you to go marry an adulterous wife. Yep. Okay. So imagine that you're a faithful uh, Yahweh follower. You're worshiping God. You're going to Sunday school. You're going to church. Like life is good. And you get a vision from God. And God says, I want you to go find uh, just the most unfaithful, basically a prostitute. I want you to go find a prostitute. And that's who I want you to make your spouse. This is the message that Hosea is given. Uh, I can't even imagine how Hosea would feel about that, but he obeys. obeys. And so he marries this woman named Gomer. Uh, He and Gomer have three different children. The names of these children are very significant, and we'll get to that when we get into chapter one. Mm -hmm. But just know for right now that they have three three children. And after they have these three children, Gomer runs away to pursue again a life of prostitution. Uh, She becomes a, a prostitute and seeks after multiple different men. Now, at this time, at some point, she the situation gets so bad for her that she's actually sold into slavery. And uh, in Hosea's heartache, in his heartbreak, and, and I think we can um, uh, gain from a lot of what's going on, that Hosea legitimately loved her. Despite yeah. her, uh, despite her infidelity, uh, Hosea felt a deep connection and a deep love for her through this. And Hosea actually, this narrative ends in chapter 3 with Hosea going to the slavers and buying back his wife. They're not divorced. So she still belongs to him as his wife, but he pays the price to buy her out of slavery and redeem her from that life of slavery and prostitution. So we have this incredible love story here in Hosea chapter 1 through 3 of this sort of redeeming, unfailing love of Hosea. Hosea's marriage, though, is used as an image of what's going on in Israel. His wife, Gomer, her infidelity is used as an image for Israel's betrayal. And Hosea buying her back at God's command is used as an image of God's love for his people. And so this whole idea, this idea of a um, rebellious wife being bought back by a faithful husband is then what's going to form the plot line for the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. So that's the first major section, chapters 1 through 3. The second major section is chapters 4 through 14, the rest of the book. All of this is written in poetry. Uh, And it's actually a series of maybe 14 different poems here that range from chapters 4 all the way through 14. Now, within this, there's two smaller sections, Mm -hmm. okay? And I'm going to go through that in a second. But let's talk about chapters 4 through 14 in these poems. These poems deal primarily with uh, Israel's treachery against God, uh, the way that they have betrayed him and the way that they have whored themselves out after other gods and uh, they have looked to other people. Um, In this, uh, basically, Hosea builds his case against Israel through these poems. He, uh, He condemns the perverse priesthood and corrupt leadership of the nation. He also points out how they have chased after Baal. They are worshiping Baal, and and Baal becomes this very dominant figure. We talked about Baal a lot in our study of Judges, actually. 
Something else we talked about a lot in the book of Judges is one of Kelson's favorite words, syncretism. syncretism. Okay, We're going to talk about that again here. Because what we discover is that Israel is not worshiping Baal and completely abandoning God. Instead, what they're doing is they're trying to worship Baal and God and Yahweh. And so what they're doing is they're making sacrifices to Baal, perhaps within the temple of Yahweh himself, and then they're turning around and they're expecting Yahweh to still give his blessings. They are worshiping Baal, but they are still also trying at the same time to worship God. Basically, rather than being faithful to God alone, they are treating God as one of many. Mm -hmm. This, by the way, is where this adultery thing comes into play. Because when God sees this, he compares this activity of having this split loyalty as being like an adulterous wife, yeah. of chasing after other husbands, other lovers, while you're in a marriage relationship with him. We also see related to this is that uh, the other thing that, that God kind of brings his case against them is that Israel, instead of trusting in God for their protection, they are instead turning to foreign nations, nations like Assyria and Egypt in particular. Yeah. Now, if you get in your mind kind of the geography of, of Israel, Israel is this little strip of land uh, that sits between a massive desert and a massive sea, okay? And it's the only access in the Middle East from north to south is actually through the land of Israel. To the north sits this massive empire of Assyria. To the south sits this massive rich empire of Egypt. And so Israel, rather than trusting God for protection, they are trying to make these alliances with these kingdoms who traditionally hate each other. Assyria yeah. and Egypt are not fans uh -huh. of each other. They're trying to make these alliances between these two different nations. And God is saying that this is going to lead them into turmoil because they are trusting in basically their ability to form alliances rather than God's protection of them as a nation. Mm -hmm. Now, the first major sec or the first subsection in this big section ends with chapter 11. And what we see in chapter 11 is a different style of poem. Chapter 11 is a poem that talks about Yahweh's love for Israel. And so all these things that Israel's done wrong, all these ways that Israel has failed, God sort of hits the pause button in chapter 11 and he reinforces or he reinvigorates the fact that despite all of their rebellion, despite all of their treachery, he still loves them. He says in chapter 11, verse 8, that his heart churns within him and he becomes warm and tender towards them because God simply cannot his love is so unfailing and so strong that he cannot give up on his people, even though, by all rights, he should divorce and punish them for all of their sin. Now, the next section then begins with chapter 12 through 14. Okay, And now, while uh, the first section was kind of a case made against the children of Israel, chapters 12 uh, and, and 13 really deal with a history of Israel's treachery, rebellion, and hard-heartedness. And here, Hosea uses images from uh, Jacob uh, in Genesis. He uses images of the wilderness rebellion in the book of Numbers and also of King Saul in 1 Samuel to talk about how Israel's whole history has been a history of, of whoredom, mm -hmm. of turning their backs on him, of seeking after other gods, of treachery and rebellion. And so he goes through their whole history. But then we get to chapter 14. And once again, God hits the pause button. And chapter 14, like chapter 11, is a chapter about his love. And in chapter 14, there is a promise that with true repentance comes restoration from God. Yeah. And so the book ends with this beautiful poem about restoration. So once again, we have chapters 1 through 3, which form the narrative backbone. We have chapters 4 through 14, which form the poetry that then explores the grief that God has over Israel's sin. But within chapters 4 and 14, we have two sections, both of which end with a poem of love. And what I love about the book of Hosea is that all three of these sections, they all point back to this, this same message. Okay? And, and what we see is this unified message of the book of Hosea, which is that despite all the bad that Israel has done, there is a message of future hope that God is going to redeem those who repent and belong to him. And all the book of, of Hosea sort of comes back to this central message. And I think with that, that's a good place for me to hit, to, to stop and bounce it back to Kelson as she now takes this and explores the main purpose of the book of Hosea. Yeah, so 
Uh, great structure, by the way. That's really good. So the purpose, as we kind of already see, is just the fact of Hosea telling the people, you know what I mean, hey, because of the wickedness, because of the, the things that, not just you, but your, your history family, as he'll go into play of several times of going after other gods, adopting, intermarrying, all these things we, the Lord has said not to do, that this is going to happen. Like you, you, you will be taken from Iksah. However, there is going to be redemption. There is hope. There is love. And that the Lord, even though because of all the stuff that you've done, God himself, there is that, yes, there is justice, but there is this un failing love that's always going to stay there no matter what the what the case is and that they would be redeemed eventually yeah mm-hmm. and that's kind of like the big purpose overall. the big overarching yeah. uh, purpose of of the book um yeah absolutely and so as we've kind of explored these these four different areas um now i kind of want to have a conversation about the themes mm-hmm. now hosea is a book that is deeply tied to its historical settings absolutely um, and, and even studying for for theology with coffee today uh, i've realized that that it is it is deeply entrenched and rooted in what's going on in israel at that time yeah However, the very last verse of the book of Hosea says this, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord of right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Mm -hmm. This little verse here, I think, is added by Hosea at the end to indicate that while, uh, yes, this book is deeply tied to what's going on in Israel in those days, there is a message for every generation of God's people that comes out of this book. There are themes that that apply to every group of believers, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Mm -hmm. And Hosea is saying, hey, don't neglect and don't ignore the warnings of this book and the message of this book because it applies across the board. It's not just for this period of 783 to 730, but this is something that every generation of believers can learn from. Uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's talk about some of these themes that we're going to see in this book that sort of apply to us and apply to where we're at today, apply to every generation Absolutely. of believers. So I'll start with you. What are some of the themes that you think jump out to you? Yeah, the first one is the theme of covenant. Like okay. we see this play a lot, you know, about, again, in this historical context of this covenant theme, right? We see it in Genesis where God makes a covenant with Abraham. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, we see this with, you know, with Jacob, you know, at Bethel, um, when he's wrestling with the Lord. We see this at Mount Sinai as Moses makes the Ten Commandments and makes this covenant. Joshua, with his last farewell, is this covenant. Again, you know, this, this thing of like, d- here are these things. I put these things in place for you to live a good life. Mm -hmm. Don't do these things if that is, like I said, we see that again and again. Don't intermarry. Don't adopt other gods. Like, I am the focus. Don't bow. Don't do all these things. And yet we see this continued circleness from the very beginning to all the way to now that they continue to breach the covenant. Mm -hmm. The covenant, where we talked about this, covenants were important. They were bigger than promises. If you broke the covenant, there had to be death and consequence. Yeah. And yet God put that on himself. And yet we see where God's grace and his mercy, which is, I think, another theme over and over, the justice of how he continues to warn his people, you know, not just here, but even us today. Mm-hmm. And if we don't follow the covenant, what God has given with both of us, as well as our past, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like that you talk about covenant there um, because this idea of God's covenant with Israel being a like a marriage covenant uh, and that Israel's sin is committing adultery against God, uh, this is something that we see frequently in the prophets. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are two examples of prophets that really stress this heavily, but perhaps none of them stress it to the degree that Hosea does. Because Hosea actually lives this. Um, And and so with Hosea, I think you you get even more of this element because Hosea knows what it feels like to be cheated on by your spouse. Yeah. He like, that was his life. Yeah, it it never stopped. It could just continue to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and so for him, it's like, it wasn't just something that was way out there. It's something that he was experiencing at the time, which I think speaks to sort of the uh, incredible emotion that we're going to see 
uh, in the poetry of this book because yeah. there are sections of this book that truly are heart-wrenching uh, as you read them uh, because it's it's a book about feeling yeah. uh, and, and this feeling of, of betrayal. Um, one of the themes that I picked out was that uh, our holy God is grieved by sin. Mm. And I think you touched on this with this idea of covenant, but but this, this image of sin against God being like adultery in a marriage. Um, you know, this, this book really stresses how and, and looks, I think this book perhaps more than any other, talks about what sin is from God's perspective. And it strikes me how often we tend to dismiss sin, we tend to ignore sin, we tend to minimize sin. Mm -hmm. Even the way that a lot of times we talk about sin in the church today, we talk about sin being brokenness, we talk about sin being slavery, we talk about sin um, sort of messing up our lives. And this is all true and all this is biblical. Yeah. But when you look at the core of what sin is, what I think the biggest message uh, of this book is, is that sin is an offense against God. Yeah. And it is something that is deserving of divorce from God. It is yeah. something that is deserving of God basically saying, I'm done with you, right? Because no one would hold it against a husband, if his wife runs off and becomes a prostitute by her own free will, no one would hold it against a husband to say, okay, I'm just done with this. I'm, right. I'm not gonna deal with the heartache anymore. But Hosea doesn't do that, and God doesn't do that. He continues to pursue Israel in their whoredom, in yeah. their sin, in their betrayal. Uh, God is still there with them. But, and, and I'm getting off topic here, but the, the theme, one of the themes I see here is the incredible pain and heartbreak and grief that our sin causes God. Mm. And I don't think we think about that enough today. Yeah. Uh, we often think of sin as being something that either is not that big of a deal or that it's like, well, you know, sin messes stuff up, but it's it's not really, it, it's not horrible. But the book of Hosea says, no, sin is horrible. And sin fills God with grief and wrath, which because he is just and holy, yeah. um, that is a righteous response to, to sin on our part. Uh, so, yeah, did you have any comment on that, or do you have another theme that you want to talk about? Um, oh, I think another, yeah, is what you just mentioned, is we see a lot of the theme of love and mm. injustice, right? Again, as you said, like, the sin that is in our lives, God doesn't just deal with that lightly. And then the fact, too, of just, like, the patience involved in that, you know? Mm -hmm. He continues to go after his people, like us, even today, and just like Hosea does with Gomer over and over and over again, and the pain and the agony, it's like, here it is. And finally it just says, enough is enough. And yeah. I can't imagine, not just in a marriage, but that's like even saying with your kid, right? Mm -hmm. Where maybe has grown up in the church their whole lives and you've invested them and they go off and college or whatever comes into play. And it's like, they should know again and again and again. And it just breaks your heart as a parent to just see what's going on and yet enough is enough where mm -hmm. you just have to say okay like they have to make the decisions and yeah hopefully they... i i think in chapter nine um it, it actually the the jose uses a lot of different images but yeah he, he also uses images of the rebellious child exactly um, yeah so not just a marriage we see as like a parent or a guardian mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um yeah, one of the themes, and, and you you hit on this exactly. One of the things I, themes I listed here is God's love is more powerful than human sin. Yeah, uh, this is one of the messages of hope that we do find in in the book of of Hosea is that no matter how much Israel sins, God still loves them. Yeah. No matter how rebellious we are, God still pursues us and loves us. And there's this one of the the beautiful verses. It comes in one of those two poems of love that I told you about. It comes in the first one, chapter eleven, eleven eight. God says this: How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Uh, what an amazing verse here that says, you know despite all everything you've done. Yeah. Um I cannot give up loving you. Right. Because God's love is so faithful. Mm -hmm. And it, and it really reminds me of the gospel as as uh, Paul expresses in the book of Romans, Romans 5a, while we were yet, yet sinners, sinners, 
God still loved us and sent his son to die for our sins, mm. right? It's in the midst of our sin. Well, and I just think of also um, Romans eight twenty eight. you know, no matter the death of the height, mm. evil, you know, forces or emotions, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Yeah. You know, and that's the same way here. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that we're going to explore and we're going to talk about is the theme of knowledge. And what does it mean to know the Lord? Uh, in Hebrew and in the way that it's expressed in the book of Hosea, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing him on a relational level. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Hosea is really going to challenge Israel on is that they know about God. They know a lot about him. But their knowledge of him on this relational, this covenantal level, um, this intimate relational knowledge that they have of God, that is devoid. That's gone. And he's going to stress this idea that what God really desires is this true, deep relationship with him. To know the Lord is to be in relationship with him. Yeah. I think of that verse, you know, um, to seek him, you, you know, you have to find him. Mm-hmm. You know, he is in the secret place and, and the door is open. We just have to open the door and take a plunge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other themes? No. Nope. All right. Then I'll just quickly la- list these last two that I had on here. Uh, related to this idea of to know the Lord is to have relationship with him. One of the things you're going to spot a lot in the book of Hosea is Hosea really um, confronts the idea of religious performance as a replacement for passionate relationship with God. Uh, You're going to see a lot that Israel is participating in religious festivals, in sacrifices. They are doing the things that they are supposed to do in order to look like they're faithful to God. Right. But that is devoid of any relationship. That is devoid of any passion for Yahweh. They are going through the motions, as we would say in in kind of our modern lingo, but there is no heart behind those motions. Oh, how applicable that is today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and we're going to see that showing up a lot in the book of Hosea. So again, this is not a people who have completely forgotten and jettisoned the concept of Yahweh. This is a people who actually think they are in right relationship with Yahweh because they are uh, worshiping him. They're doing these sacrifices, but their hearts are far from him in this sense. Um, and then this kind of brings me, interestingly enough, to my the last of these themes. Uh, and this might spark a little bit of conversation here. We'll, we'll just have to see. But there is this theme throughout the book of Hosea that salvation means redemption from sin and death. Okay. Now, why do I stress that? Um, Hosea, as well as actually a lot of the books we're going to be looking at in this volume of the journal, uh, a lot of these minor prophets, They have this, uh, oftentimes they're used to sort of say, well, salvation in the Old Testament meant a right society. It meant social justice. Mm -hmm. It meant, you know, people living in harmony with one another. The injustice of Israel, though, is always presented not as the problem, but as a symptom of the problem. This corrupt priesthood, this corrupt leadership that is, is throughout Israel at this time, they were a problem, but they were not the problem. The problem was the unrepentant hearts of Israel. And even broader than that, the problem was that death creates separation from God. Death is the result of our sin, and death produces separation from God. So in Old Testament Israel, what was salvation? Well, actually, one of the best verses to discuss what salvation is in the Old Testament is found in the book of Hosea. Uh, It's found for us. I need to look it up real quick. In chapter 13, verse 14. And some of you are going to recognize the language that Hosea uses here because it's quoted by a very famous New Testament author. Verse 14, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, that is hell. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Look, Paul, when he's talking about the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians, he quotes this. He says, death is defeated through Jesus Christ. And then he says, oh, death, Death. where is your sting? Mm -hmm. Oh, hell, where is your victory? This is a quotation here of Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. This tells us that for the ancient Israelite, their hope in God, yes, was for a reformed society. 
But a Reformed society was so far down the list of what the ancient Israelites actually hoped for in God that it was almost inconsequential. Again, think about societal problems, societal uh, injustice as a symptom of the deeper problem. Mm -hmm. What is the deeper problem? The deeper problem is that human sin and rebellion create separation from a holy God. And that without God fixing that problem, we will die. Death is the problem. And who is the ruler of death? It is Satan. It is the great enemy. So we belong to Satan because of our sin and because we belong to the realm of death. What is the great promise of the book of Hosea? What is the great promise of God's love? It is that God will defeat even that enemy death and that God will restore his people to him and perfect that relationship. Mm. Hosea doesn't know how. Right. Okay? Hosea knows a price must be paid. Right. Because he has to buy his wife back in chapter 3. Right. God is going to have to pay a price Mm -hmm. to redeem Israel. Hosea doesn't know what it is. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, understands that the price that God paid is his own son, Jesus Christ. Mm. And it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that God redeems, defeats death, and that we find true salvation, which is a relationship with God. Okay, I'm going to shut up and, and turn that, it over no, to you. No, that was great. <laughs> I never put that connection together. So that that's, yeah. Well, so. Hosea is a book, not a lot of people would go to Hosea to find the gospel. But having preached through the book of Hosea once on Sunday mornings and and now having studied it again uh, for the sake of theology with coffee, the gospel is all over the place in Hosea. Yeah. Uh, It is so evident. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, that was was a great connection. So thank you for sharing. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, what else do you want to say? Oh, so, um, well, about theme or just like in general? Theme, general, gospel. Right. So we keep saying major and minor prophets. You're like, okay, what, what, what makes that major versus the minor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, I did a lot of research on this. There's really not much except for the fact that the minor prophets or considered the book of the 12, mm-hmm. which I thought was neat, mm-hmm. right? 12, 12 tri- okay, 12 tribes of Israel, 12, tribes, 12 disciples. disciples. Yeah, we um, see this number pop up mm-hmm. several times. Um, pretty much what happens is that the length uh, all those specific bu- minors, Hosea, all those 12, were all written on one scroll versus where like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel were on several scrolls. Mm-hmm. So it's not like one's important versus the other. It's just the length. And yes, some of those books of the minor had the same length of Daniel. However, I didn't know this. Um, in the Jewish, the Daniel would be considered the writings, not the prophets. Interesting. Yeah, which yeah. makes sense because there's a lot of narrative Ex- history. Absolutely. So, you know what I mean? I thought that was really interesting that it was more considered the writings. I don't know why we decided for it to be in the major prophets. I would mm-hmm. need to study more about that. But that's kind of what the difference is between the major and the minor. There's yeah. not one's important than the other. It's just... One was specifically written on one scroll, while the others are just, there were several of them. Yeah. And that's why they were divided that way. And for us today, the minor prophets mostly mean the weird names that none of us can remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, and plus the major and minor are, are books that lots of people don't study about. Yeah. Like, you know, those are the ones that really, you don't hear a lot of sermons, maybe a lot of Bible studies. Okay, maybe for some of the major, some of them, but especially the minor, you mm-hmm. don't really talk about those whatsoever. No, and uh, but you might be surprised to find out that these books are very important to your New Testament authors. Absolutely. Um, because uh, you're going to find several quotations in Hosea that show up in the Gospels. Uh, we've already looked at one that shows up mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you, as we go through these other books, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, there are references, and these books were deeply important to the view that the Israel, that that the New Testament authors develop about Jesus Christ. And you know, I've I've frequently said that you know, really thinking about his Old Testament and New Testament, it creates this false dichotomy between these two uh, different sections of our Bible. The Old Testament is never in conflict with the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The New Testament simply reveals. Uh, in greater detail what the Old Testament writes about. Right. Um, I know Dr. Michael Heiser, someone I've referenced before, he says the New Testament is an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. What that should tell you is that to understand the new, you have to understand, understand the, the old. old. The minor prophets, these 12 prophets, shorter books at the end of your Old Testament, 
These are a part of that revelation, mm -hmm. right? And we neglect them to our own detriment. Uh, it is to our own detriment that we do not study these and we do not take them to heart uh, as far as that goes. Um, what do you think are some reasons why we tend to neglect some of these books? Um, I think some of it is the poetry, yeah. right? Hebrew poetry has its own format. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard because, well, I think even poetry today, like <laughs> British poetry, you know, any poetry is really hard to understand. Yeah. Um, and I think that's intimidating to a lot of people. And so that's why it's not expressed as much. Or if you do try, you're like, I have no idea what's happening. You know what I mean? You try to figure it out or wrap it around and you just, you can't. And so you give up. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, we often, um, we do such a poor job reading poetry. We do. Uh, and I'm talking about modern day poetry. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Modern's maybe mm -hmm. not the best word there, but I'm talking about Western poetry. We, we often miss it, and we, we don't even realize where poetry shows up mm -hmm. uh, in our culture today. You can see poetry in uh, jingles and, and uh, advertisements on TV, okay? Why? Poetry sticks in our heads. Yeah. Poetry creates emotion. And so uh, advertisers know this, and so they use poetry to manipulate you. Uh, poetry, in essence, creates emotion within us. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you know, at the risk of sounding overly cynical, um, politicians, advertisers, companies, they use poetry to force you to feel certain ways in order to control you. Uh, this is the way it works. The ancient poetry operated the same way, but it uses different rules. Uh, it uses different, different ways of, of doing this. Um, I think a lot of the problem we run into is that for most people, Okay, take your Bible away, because I know a lot of our, our listeners of Theology with Coffee, you have experience with the Bible. But if you take the Bible away, the, the oldest poetry you've probably read is Shakespeare. Yeah. Okay, maybe you read Beowulf, uh, <laughs> but, you know, maybe you had to suffer through that in English lit. But probably the oldest you've read is, is Shakespeare. Shakespeare, yeah. And a lot of Shakespeare we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Shakespeare was written in our native language in a culture closer to ours than what ancient Israel's was. So Shakespeare is easier for us to access than ancient Hebrew poetry, which has been translated and it's written to a culture that is completely different from our own. Right. And so it's no wonder that we find it difficult, we find it weird, we find it esoteric, uh, we find it uh, to be frustrating to try to read through these sections. Um, do you think that that's kind of related to it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are some, can you think of some rules, some, some, some advice that you can give people as we get into poetry about the best way to sort of access it? Uh, well, um, sometimes the sentence structure, like within poetry, helps with you to understand. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember all the technical terms. It's been a long time since English. But <laughs> how it's written, like the sentence, the numbering, I guess numer numeric, will help you with the timing of the rhythm and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. So poems, and this is not Hebrew poetry specifically, this is all poems, are divided into lines and strophes. Right. Strophes. Um, there you yeah, go. That, that's I was the looking term for you were that. looking for. Yeah. So a line is a line. Line. Uh, a strophe is a collection of those lines. You can think of a strophe the same way that we think of a paragraph when mm -hmm. you're reading uh, a narrative. Okay, so within a paragraph section of a narrative, that's going to communicate a single idea, or it should if the writer has any skill. Mm -hmm. Okay, so each paragraph uh, in English, you would call these topic sentences. Each paragraph has a topic sentence, and that paragraph should all sort of give you a single idea that you can think of. Okay. Lines and strophes do the same thing. Yeah, uh, they're the the lines are the contents. The strophe is usually arranged around a single idea. Now, what Hebrew poetry does a lot is a lot of times it arranges it around an image. Okay, and we're going to see some very powerful images in the Book of Hosea. Absolutely. One of these we've already talked about this idea of a um, of infidelity within a marriage. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's an image that that goes all throughout the book. Um, another example we tend kind of Hebrew poetry was in Judges. Yes. You know, yeah. um, with Deborah, and so that kind of. I don't know. Maybe that's something if you want to look back on that might help you a little bit. Help you a little bit on yeah. that. Yeah. But when you think about poetry, think about what is the motion? Mm -hmm. uh, where is this poem going? And what is the feeling? Okay. 
And whereas when, when we're talking about narrative and we're talking about epistles, which are letters, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, we're, we're asking the question, okay, what, what does this uh, mean? With poetry, you're more asking the question, how does this feel, okay? Or how does this mean? In other words, poetry is not going to come straight out and tell you, right. you know, God is loving and um, merciful and you're a sinner and you need to put your faith in him. Okay, That's the job of epistles to do that. That's the job of letters, uh, like Paul's letters, to do that. Um, oftentimes narrative, the meaning is found at the very end. So when you reflect upon the overall narrative, you'll, you'll see the narrative will show you what, what you uh, what you should what you should take away from that. Poetry is going to have a feeling, and it's in that feeling that we're going to find the truth of what that poem is trying to get mm -hmm. at. Again, think back to this idea of God is grieved by sin. This is a feeling that you should get when reading the book of Hosea. There should be an element that Hosea wrings your heart out with grief over what the prophet and therefore God is experiencing in these relationships. Chapters 11 and 14 should elate us with joy when we reflect upon the love of our God. Okay, So there is no such thing as dry analysis of poetry. Right. If you're coming into po Hebrew poetry and if you don't feel anything, you're doing it wrong. And I know you're not supposed to tell people you're doing it wrong, but you are. Mm -hmm. Because the point of poetry is to make you feel, feel. something. Yeah. And from that feeling is where we gain the truth. Okay? We feel heartbroken over what Hosea and God have experienced. What is the truth? We should be grieved by sin the same way that God is grieved by sin. That's a little primer there. And obviously as we go through these chapters, we're going to walk through that. We're going to talk about that, that idea of you know, what emotion is the poem trying to lead us towards? How does this uh, poem mean what it is making us feel? Uh, if that makes any sense at all. Mm -hmm. So. Oh, I also have another question. Oh, sure. So um, we see Hosea specifically gives a lot of oracles, prophecy. I think sometimes that's kind of twisted about mm -hmm. what exactly is prophecy within the Bible. So would you give us a definition of kind of like what, you know, as we're reading this, what what does that mean? You know, sure. as Hosea is given that. Yeah, and I and I think that you're right. This does that this does um, create a lot of confusion. So. In general, so talking about uh, biblical prophecy in general, and this includes both Old Testament and New Testament, mm -hmm. um, because books like um, uh, uh, Acts and Revelation have a lot of prophetic elements to them, as well as other books, First right. and Second Thessalonians, for example. Prophecy is, we tend to think of prophecy as foretelling, mm -hmm. okay? So almost like a fortune teller, telling us what's going to happen. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but that is a very pagan view of prophecy. Uh, and if, if you think that prophecy is about telling the future, that's a magical pagan idea of what prophecy is. Prophecy includes that, and there are certainly elements of prophecy that include that. We're going to find elements of that in the book of Hosea. Right. Not as predominant as you do in a book like Daniel, but it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, there are elements of it that are there. I've already read one of you, one of those to you, where Hosea talks about the defeat of death. Well, that is a future prediction of what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. So it is an element of prophecy, but it's by no means the primary um, uh, function of prophecy. Prophecy primarily is not concerned with foretelling, it is concerned with forthtelling. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that prophecy exposes and prophecy points out what is going on in that culture at the time that needs to be addressed. Uh, it is pointing out the sins that need to be repented from and is pointing out the covenantal will of God and how God is moving in that particular epoch or period or dispensation of history in order to work about his plan and his purpose. So prophecy is a foretelling of God's word. That's why oftentimes prophecy is associated with this term, uh, thus saith the Lord. Mm -hmm. okay, that's the old King James version of that. But it's the idea that prophecy in its essence is God speaking to a culture that is then applied across the board to all of his people. So hopefully that wasn't too dry and academic no, there. No, I but think that was good. But yeah, I think what, it was what is your reaction? No, I that? think absolutely. Because I think there can be a mis 
interpretation of that. And so that's how I wanted to ask because I think we normally see it as, you know, foretelling of the future when it, it foretelling of what God is wanting specifically within that culture, you know, to do, yeah. you know? So I think that was really good. And back to your theme of covenant, I mean, oftentimes when when we see this element of prophecy going forth, so again, a lot of the times that prophecy is talked about today, uh, especially if you're in sort of a, um, uh, a charismatic, a... Uh, Pentecostal sort of sort of environment, prophecy will be talked about like, oh, I know who the next president of the United States is going to be. Mm-hmm. I know who the Antichrist is going to be. Uh, I know what the mark of the beast is. This is the way we we think about prophecy. But again, that has a lot more roots in paganism than it does in actual biblical prophecy. Right. Biblical prophecy always focuses on the covenant will of God. Mm. Okay, biblical prophecy exposes something about what God is doing. And if there are elements there uh, that talk about the politics, so a great example of this is Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 goes through great detail what's going to happen geopolitically around Israel over the space of about 300 years uh, after Alexander the Great's empire splits up and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids go to war with each other and Israel's right in the middle and they're a victim of all these wars. Daniel goes into great detail talking about these things that are hundreds of years um, away from when Daniel's time is uh, in the future. But all of that is framed around this idea of what is God's covenantal will for his people. How is God redeeming his people? And that section of Daniel leads us specifically to Jesus Christ and the work that Christ is going to do uh, to restore Israel and redeem all of the nations. This is what's missing in the way that we talk about prophecy. Mm-hmm. Because again, prophets that you find on YouTube, uh, people like this, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna tell you who the next president's gonna be. They're almost always wrong. They're gonna give a date for when the the um, uh, rapture is gonna happen. They're always, always wrong. wrong. Yeah. Okay, so they're they're gonna do things like this completely divorced to God's covenantal will and plan. Mm -hmm. They're going to use Bible-like language. But if you really think about what prophets today do, it looks nothing like what the prophets of of the Scripture do. Because the prophets of the Scripture, again, were primarily concerned not with predicting future events, but with forth-telling the covenantal will of God for his people. Yeah. So. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, I have a question for you. Okay. Okay? And you didn't know I was going to ask you this question. No, I did not. What are you most looking forward to in the book of Hosea? What am I most? You know, as I have kind of glimpsed, it's been kind of fun to, like, look back on the historical context of Mm -hmm. this imagery that Hosea does of bringing back some of these Old Testament things. And again, we talked about how the Bible itself is this huge, big story, this seamless story that threads itself all the way through. And so for me, it's kind of like hidden puzzles of of seeing those things within the book of Hosea that like, ah, there's that, and there's this, and this, there's that, and how it all connects together. And this wonderful thing of how God just loves his people. Mm -hmm. And, And how he's not been doing that just with Jose in that time or even now, but has been doing that from the very, very, very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Well, good. And you guys can also expect that. I hope you're excited for what we're going to discover. What are you uh, excited? In the book of Hosea. I think related to that, I'm excited to revisit the uh, gospel in Hosea. Because, uh, like I said, I, I think it was probably four or five years ago I, I did a sermon series on Hosea. Um, and uh, I want to say it was like a maybe four weeks uh, in, in the book of Hosea. I went pretty quick through it. But I just remember at that time being so, um, so amazed by the gospel. Um, and now, especially with Theology with Coffee, as we've been looking at, you know, how these things connect. And, you know, we're going to see some familiar images like Israel wandering through the wilderness. I mean, how many times do we talk about that in books like First Peter and, and Hebrews? Um, we're going to see these themes popping up again. And I'm just really excited to see how uh, the gospel of salvation through faith alone, um, uh, how that plays out in the book of Hosea and how that foreshadows the work of Christ on the cross. Awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. Be looking forward to Hosea, everybody. <laughs> so hope you're excited as well.、Uh, we're jumping into it next week, right? Uh huh. All right. So next week, Hosea chapter one ish. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly. I'm not exactly how, how far we'll go either. You never know with us. You、so. never know with us. Sometimes we get through four or five chapters. Sometimes, sometimes we get through twelve、like, verses, or even three. <laughs> There was three one、verses. time we just talked about three. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, but、uh, I can promise you, it'll be exciting no matter what happens. Absolutely. So, do you want to pray us out? I will pray us out. Great.、Here. So, y'all join me. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the joy that comes from studying your word, from learning more about you. I thank you for the joy of、uh, companionship, and that theology is something that we do together with one another.、Uh, learning more about you is always exciting. And Father, as we come into this book of Hosea, I pray that we come with open hearts and open minds,、uh, that we would come ready to be convicted and encouraged.、Uh, that Lord, you would、uh, expose our sins, but、uh, also show us that that you are a God whose love is more powerful than those sins. We love you, Father. It's in your holy name I pray. Amen. See you next time.